When it comes to deciding which content to include in these bonus episodes, it can be really challenging. Some of the stories are short, some are long, but I feel like they're all worth including, making it extra difficult (laughs) to narrow down and produce each episode. This week, it came together using new interviews from two individuals I didn't have the chance to interview before completing the season. And I really didn't want you to miss out on hearing from them. This is She's Missing. This podcast discusses kidnapping and adult themes. Additionally, you will hear audio from the pursuit and the shooting. While not explicit, listener discretion is advised. We ask that if you know Megan or her family, that you continue to help protect her identity. The first interview was with former Sheriff Paul Wild. He was not the sheriff at the time of Megan's kidnapping. That was Sheriff Stommel. However, he was the liaison between the media and Megan's family, giving him a unique perspective and relationship with Megan and her family. The second interview was with Deputy Albert Thompson. You may remember hearing about him in episode six, The Pursuit Was On. If you haven't heard that episode yet, I encourage you to go back and listen to that episode first. Let's start by hearing from Paul Wild. You know, that day was like many others, you know, where everybody's everywhere and me and one of the other deputies were at a training in, uh, I think it was Twin Falls, and uh, we were getting information. So I checked in and they said, I think we have a, an abduction. There's a missing child, but it doesn't sound like a, a runaway. We were getting the updates on that all day long, and so we're checking with Sheriff Stommel and seeing what we need to do and if we need to um, come back. And he's saying, no, you guys are good. You know, the guys are all on it. Everybody's good. Stay there. Sergeant Cox was the sergeant over detectives, and he was the one that was kind of heading this up. And he's the one that talked um, Sergeant Raymond about getting part of the SWAT team out there for a takedown. And where I was already on shift, I already had my SWAT gear with me. So he told me what we was going to do. And I said, okay, that's fine. I'll head out there. And I was, as I was headed out there, I remember the phone ringing. It was Deputy Hudman. And he said, Al, are you headed out to, towards that call? And I said, yeah. He goes, well, I'm going to be coming out. He goes, but I forgot my best. I'm like, okay, so what can I do to help? He goes, can you run to my house, my daughter's home, and get my best and get it to me? I'm like, okay. So I run to his house, get the best come back, meet him, and then I end up on the east side of the house. And there's a large bush next to a driveway that I decided to park my car behind. And I'm just sitting there waiting, listening to radio traffic. And I can hear Sergeant Cox and Deputy Reed say, okay, he just went by in the Mack tool truck. And I'm trying to envision what kind of a tool truck, big, small, little, I, I don't know. I just heard Mack tool truck. So he's getting in, and I heard him say, oh, he's going to turn in. Hold on. Now he's not turning. He's headed east, which is right towards where I was at. And I'm looking up over the bush, and I can see the top of the tool truck coming. 
So my instinct was just to pull out in the middle of the road and try and get him to stop. So I pulled my car halfway across the road, and I'm like, oh, he's not stopping. So I just kind of cringed and turned my head to the right going, this is going to hurt, because I just feared he was going to hit me. And he drove around and by, and I backed up. By then, everybody's starting to get in line behind him, and so I joined in at the very end because everybody was behind him. Then we headed across 20, and that was the reason why I was trying to get across the road is I knew how busy Highway 20 was, and I didn't know if he was going to go left, right, or go straight across there. I was trying to think anything I could to get him to stop, slow down. We're checking with Sheriff Stommel, and he says, you guys need to get here, uh, come home. So we packed up, and we were scheduled to be there another day, and we packed up and just headed for home to to help out. We're all joining the line. We're all staying back. Uh, Sergeant Reed, if I remember right, was the second car in line, and he was doing most of the radio traffic because as a backcountry deputy, you have all the frequencies to other agencies, which makes it easier for him to get in touch with the others rather than not the guys downtown. So he was calling the pursuit, so I'm trying to remember Schiffler was up front. I think he was. I know I was at the back of the pack for quite a while. We're headed out 26, and I just got told bits and pieces about what this was, and the suspect is Hescock, and I'm like, Hescock? That's the same guy from previous report that I took. Deputy Thompson took the initial call on September 14, 2001, for the Amber Hoops disappearance. For him, hearing Hescock's name definitely caught his attention and heightened the tension. So we're headed out 26, and because of the nature of the crime, we knew it was going to go one way or the other, and probably not in a good way, whether it be for us or him. Because we didn't have a whole lot of time, really, to put this together. But I will tell you that sitting back and just driving and thinking about what the job was that we had to do, what had been done by him and what what we needed to get done, everybody knew their job. Everybody knew what to do, how to do it, and what we had to do to get it done. What we just couldn't control was Hescock. And I remember sitting back feeling proud of everybody that was there that knew their job and was willing to do what it took to get that job done without any hesitation. It was like a well-oiled machine. It just, things just clicked into place. So we're all headed out 26, staying in single file, and Raymond and Lovell decide they're going to pass everybody so they can get somebody in front of them, which wasn't a bad idea to try and slow it down, um, spike strip his tires so he'd slow down. Um, so they passed all of us, got in front of him, went up a little farther to find a safe spot to do it. Concerned minutes after that that they got in place, he decided to turn. When Hescock turns, the chase becomes much more dangerous. The road is more narrow, and he is headed up the mountain on winding dirt roads. The tool truck is just got all kinds of dust flying. And then every car that followed him just put that much more dust in the air. 
when you get up past the ski hill, maybe a mile or two, the road forks to the right and goes to the left. It was so dusty by the time I got there, I couldn't tell which way the road went. And I almost hit some people in the middle of the road in a camper because I just couldn't see. They were out walking around, and I stopped, and the guy looked at me. He goes, are you following the rest of them? I said, yeah. He goes, they went left. I'm like, thanks, and just hit the gas and took off left. So I had, I don't know how anybody keep up with anything because it's just so thick. Can't hardly see the sides of the road. Back in episode six, I tried my best to paint a picture of the crazy amount of dust, making the visibility practically zero. However, I missed something important that Deputy Thompson pointed out. I didn't think about the amount of dust finding its way inside those police vehicles, messing with the airflow and affecting the functionality of the police cars. So not only was it hard to see, but it was difficult to get more speed in the sluggish vehicles the further back in the pursuit they were. There was one point where it was just um, Hescock, Todd, and Brian. And I knew from where I was at that I'm not going to be there for three to five minutes as fast as this thing's going and as slow as I'm having to go because I just can't see that there's going to be a lapse in time. And it just makes you feel bad because they're your brothers in blue. You don't want anything to happen to them and you want to be there to help, but you just can't get there fast enough. I'm listening to the radio as to what's going on. They said he got high-centered in a tank trap. He jumps out, and then it's quiet for a second. I'm still driving, everybody's still getting there, and I'm here to a few other guys check out in front of me. When I get there, uh, it was just seems like shortly after uh, when the shooting had occurred that I'd found out Deputy Rick, the dog, had been shot, Todd had been shot in the leg, and Hescock had been shot, but then he had shot himself. Dispatch, Bonneville 344, I'm just approached now. House is there, we're Madison County Senate. Looks like we're going to be out. Stand by. Seven. He's a medic. Three, five, seven. We have an officer down, a canine down. We need air Idaho up here. Copy. Officer down, canine down. So they had a bunch of us. I think it was Brian, Franco, Stosage, myself. I went to double check to make sure that he was down. By the time we arrived here, it was over. The pursuit, the shooting, the everything was done. Megan was home. She was safe with her family. Deputy Stosage and I looked at each other and went, we better get back to the house and get set on it so we can get a search warrant. So we both left then and drove back to Hescock's house to send on it so they'd get a search warrant. I was assigned uh, to the family and to Megan. 
that was my job to take care of them and be the liaison to the family and to take care of the media. So that's kind of where I fall in. Her dad said, I don't want the media coming in and taking over my family. He said, keep them away from us. And so that was my job. We're going to try to protect her for just because of the type of case it was and, and all the crime that occurred there. And so protecting her as the victim and protecting them, the family, as the victim, because we want to make sure they have a liaison. They have somebody to, to go to and talk to. And that media piece between us and the victims, is that's very important too, just to make sure that the case is not tainted by anything else. So I worked with the media. We put out a news release immediately. I uh, prepared it as soon as we got back with all the information St Sheriff Stommel had. We got a news release out. Good evening and thanks for joining us. I'm Mark Browning. A man allegedly kidnaps a young girl this morning, runs from law enforcement, and ultimately loses his life. Nightside reporter Glenn Mills joins us now live from Idaho Falls. Glenn, you've got a step-by-step -step look at the events of today from the alleged abduction to the fatal shooting of the suspect. Mark, earlier this morning, the parents of a 14-year-old Bonneville County girl called to report their daughter missing. She spent the night on the family's trampoline with friends, and in the morning, she was gone. Search and rescue was called out, and the scene looked eerily familiar. This is within miles of where 20-year-old Amber Hooks was abducted less than nine months ago. After a long search, the girl was finally found. She told a story of how she was abducted, taken to the man's home, and tied up. While the man was at work, she was able to free herself, run from the house, and call for help. She was then reunited with her family and led the Bonneville County Sheriff's Office to the suspect, 42-year-old Keith Glenn Hescock of Idaho Falls. The Sheriff's Office was familiar with the suspect, and when he was spotted, a chase began. It ended this afternoon about 20 miles above Kelly Canyon on a dead-end dirt road. Law enforcement cornered the suspect, and gunshots were exchanged. A sheriff's deputy was shot in the right leg. A canine dog and the suspect were both killed. The sheriff's deputy was airlifted by Air Idaho to Ermac to be treated for the gunshot wound. He is Sergeant Todd Raymond. He's in fair condition and still at Ermac right now. Sheriff Stommel says the girl who was abducted is unbelievably brave. Here's a 14-year-old girl that, uh, that was able to figure out what to do to get out of this predicament. And it took um, some physical prowess to do that. She had to remain cool and she had to concentrate on what she was doing. She had to persevere and uh, it, it's, it's just amazing that she was able to free herself and get herself out of this situation. A state forensics team is now searching the suspect's home for further evidence. And Mark Sheriff Stommel says the canine officer Rick that was killed by the suspect earlier today may have saved Sergeant Raymond's life, something these dogs are trained to do. Back to you, Mark. All right, Glenn Mills reporting tonight. Thank you very much, Glenn. Deputy Sosich had a detailed understanding of the entire day from start to finish. When Megan was reported missing, he was the first deputy on the scene. He had also joined the pursuit, and now he was headed to Hescock's home to make sure no one entered until they had obtained a warrant. The, the following day, we did go into Hescock's home where she was taken, and we did a, a search warrant there and collected multiple things that 
just to see the, the, the place that she was taken and uh, held captive was pretty surreal. I mean, it's it's one of those things that you don't anticipate going into something like that. It's And it was a little different than some of the, the other scenes that you go into that, that aren't always very, very nice to see. Um, some of the things that uh, we saw were thousands of pornographic magazines stacked up along the wall, um, you know, pornographic videos, you know, the chain, the zip ties, you know, the bed, the door that she had gone through. So those, those things. So being involved in that really brought the, the fear of what she was going through into, into my life. It was devastating to the community, and the community really had fear of what was going on and how safe they were. When you have something that is um, not a runaway, it's an abduction, that's very scary to everyone around and all the family and friends. I mean, this is a very small farming community, and you would think that really isn't where that happens. That happens in the more the city atmosphere than in the county atmosphere. So it was jarring for so many. And it was, he had seen them earlier in the day and said, here's my, here's my target. I would love to end this interview on a positive note. Is there anything you would want to say to Megan? You know, I have, I watched Megan grow. And after she became an adult, we probably reconnected more. She knows my wife. We talk when we see each, you know, out in the community. She has grown to be an outstanding woman. There's something else working here. She's somebody's angel or many people's angel. And uh, I just love her to death. She's going to be a, uh, a great part to any community that she's in. And she will make people's lives better. There is a reason that she was able to escape. There's a reason that she is here on this earth today. And she is somebody's guardian angel. And she will always be there for somebody. And that's that's her. She wants to help people and protect them. And if they're a victim, she wants to help them understand that they can be okay. And I'm just so proud of her. It's just, it's so nice to see that I know she carries the baggage, but she takes care of that and she takes care of herself and she's doing very well. And it just amazes me what she can do for our community at large and for individuals too. This podcast was produced by me, Emily. You can find additional information on our website, she'smissingpodcast.com. She's Missing is a Search Party Media production.